Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to come and celebrate your presence and express our love to you through songs and, Lord, through prayer and, Lord, through hearing and responding to your word. And I pray that you just join with us this morning and may you be glorified in all that we do. We pray this in your name. Amen. We come to this morning to our Advent. It's a word that means coming or visit. This is a time when we prepare ourselves for the Advent of Christ at Christmas by lighting a candle each week, we are getting ready to prepare ourselves for that. Last week, our first candle was that of hope, and today we focus on the promise of a priest, Jesus Christ, who gave his life in order to satisfy the wrath of God and to bring us into the presence of the Almighty God. The second candle that we're going to light this morning is called the candle of preparation, reminding Christians to get ready to receive God. I'd like to read a quote from J.C. Ryle who says that same Jesus who once died for sinners still lives at the right hand of God to carry on the work of salvation, which he came down from heaven to perform. He lives to receive all who come unto God by him and to give him power to become the sons of God. He lives to hear the confession of every heavy laden conscience and to grant as an almighty high priest perfect absolution, and that he lives to pour down the spirit of adoption on all who believe on him and who enable them to cry, Abba, Father. He lives to be the one mediator between God and man, the unwearied intercessor, the kind shepherd, the elder brother, the prevailing advocate, the never-failing priest and friend of all who come to God by him. And he lives to be wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption to all his people, to keep them in life, to support them in death, and to bring them finally to eternal glory. Let's pray this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son to secure our salvation. Free from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, we now fix our eyes on the day when we'll be free from the presence of sin. Until that time, may the Holy Spirit speed our petitions before Jesus, our High Priest and Mediator, holding on to the truth that with confidence we can draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In the name of Christ we pray, and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, for those of you who don't know, uh, my name is Dustin. I am the pastoral intern here. Well, as you can see by the candles, Christmas season is finally here. Although some of you I know have been celebrating since September, and you need to repent of that because that's just wrong. Some of you too are just Grinches, and you need to repent of that too. Come on. All of us reasonable people have been celebrating since, you know, after Thanksgiving. But we all understand this season in a certain way, right? When it comes to the the Christmas season, no matter where you are, no matter kind of what your thoughts are, everybody wants to do this season well. Whether you know Jesus, whether you're a Christian, whether you're not, everybody wants to have a good Christmas season. You want to succeed. We want to do it in a way that keeps the important things important and the secondary things secondary. But as most of you probably know, that can be really difficult sometimes. You probably know what it feels like when Christmas just kind of zips by and all of a sudden it's 
December 26th, and you realize you never even made time to stop and think and meditate on the birth of Jesus and what that really means. I know it's happened to me. Sometimes we forget to take the time to think about the fact that God sent his son to take on human flesh and walk among us and what that means. We get so caught up in all the cultural stuff that seemed so important at the time that this important, mind-blowing, life-changing, soul-restoring truth that Christmas is all about doesn't even get a second thought. Well, sometimes, too, what happens is in our churches, we get, we get caught up in spending so much time talking about the birth of Christ. We know it's Christmas time. Okay, it's time for those sermons on Luke 2. You know, if you've grown up in the church, that's usually what happens. There's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes I think we forget that there's an entire Bible Old Testament and New that teaches us about Jesus and why he came. Christmas isn't simply about Jesus being born. It's about who Jesus was and what he did and and why he did it and what he's now doing. It's about God himself entering into humanity. And so often as we think about this, we, we think about Jesus and we think about his life, death, and resurrection. But we forget to remember that he's still alive and active today, right now, And this is why we're addressing this series. This is what we're talking about. When we're talking about the promises of Christmas, we're looking at what are Jesus' roles and what is he doing now? What did the Old Testament have to say about Jesus? Not just about the birth of Jesus, but about the scope of who he is. Why did God enter into humanity and why does it matter? And so we're exploring that through different titles. We heard last week from the promise of a Savior. This week we're going to be looking at the promise of a priest in Psalm 110. When we hear priests, for some of us, that's not a common thing. Maybe if you grew up in a Catholic church, you know, you might be familiar with the concept of a priest. But for those of us who are are kind of used to churches like this, evangelical churches, we don't hear the word priest thrown around a lot. Maybe if we're studying Leviticus or something, but the concept of a priest can be kind of hard for us. You know, maybe you think of a guy with fancy robes and a funny hat. Maybe you've had good experiences with priests. Maybe you've had bad experiences. But something comes to mind. But as you'll see in the New Testament, when we're looking in the New Testament today, in the book of Hebrews specifically, it's going to make the argument that Jesus is a priest. He's a great high priest, that Jesus' role as priest is extremely important for us as Christians. So before we we can talk about that, really, we need to understand when the Bible is saying priest, what is it talking about, right? What kind of priest are we talking about? So we have to understand, when the New Testament is talking about a priest, it's talking about priests in the Old Testament sense. And so we need, we need to learn about that a little bit. The priests in the Old Testament times were chosen by lineage. So you didn't just grow up and people said, hey, what do you want to become when you grow up? I want to become a priest. It didn't work like that. How it worked was there was bloodlines that were priestly lines. And if you were born into that, you were a priest. If you weren't, you couldn't be a priest. So it was chosen by lineage. The priest's job in the Old Testament was to represent the people to God. Very simply put, a priest was a person who was appointed to act for others in things pertaining to God. Hebrews 5 makes this really clear. It says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So they would offer multiple sacrifices per day that were prescribed by God in the book of Leviticus. Um, Some of you have, have gone through that. There's just, I mean, there's all these different regulations with different sacrifices, peace offerings, um, sin offerings, burnt offerings, you know, food offerings, all these different things. Well, that's what the priests would do. They would take care of that. They were the religious part 
of the nation of Israel. They would conduct all the religious festivals throughout the year. They would pray to God on behalf of the people. And literally, if, you ever, if you've ever read through Leviticus or something, you might know that the high priest, who's kind of the, the head priest of all the priests in Israel, his, he, wore a bre- he had very specific clothes that he had to wear. And one of the things that he wore was a breastplate that had stones on it that represented all the 12 tribes of Israel. So he had 12 stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And on his hat, it said, Holy to the Lord in, in Hebrew, which means set apart for God's service. And so he was literally, the high priest was literally representing the people of God to God, even in his clothing. And so all these tasks, though, when you, when you read the Old Testament, all these tasks had one thing in common, and that is this. They never stopped. There were no chairs in the temple because the priests who were on duty in the temple never sat down. There was always work to be done. There was always sacrifices to be made because people kept sinning. And so the priests had to keep sacrificing. The fire that was on the altar for sacrifice in Jerusalem never went out, ever. It was always burning. And so that just goes to show they were always sacrificing. And that, that was kind of the way of life in the Old Testament. That was, that was their, their religion, their way to relate to God that God prescribed for them. That was the system. And, and it was an entire system constructed by God for the people to teach the people something. It was to teach the people that God was holy and that they were sinful. They couldn't come to God without the sacrifices. Even the priests themselves had to offer sacrifices for themselves before they could go offer sacrifices for other people because they were sinful men. And it shows us, and it was supposed to teach them that God can't overlook sin and still be a good God. And I mean, that's a pretty basic concept. We understand that. You wouldn't think a judge is good who just overlooks crime for no reason. It just doesn't make sense. And so God was teaching his people that he can't overlook sin. He's a good God, and he takes sin seriously. And so this whole system taught them that. It taught them that death and blood was required to pay for sin. A perfect, innocent victim had to be required for sin to be removed. And you see this if you look at the regulations for what types of animals were needed. They were animals that were firstborn, without blemish, and perfect. And again, we can see, especially looking at the Old Testament through the eyes of the New Testament, that this system was never meant to be an end in itself. It was meant to be a system that would eventually give way to a new and better system. God designed it like that on purpose. If you read throughout the Old Testament, you can just see it over and over and over again. The Israelites are constantly messing it up. And one of the ways that they mess up is they put too much stock in the system. And God is constantly saying to them, yeah, you're doing all the religious rituals right. That's great, but your hearts are far from me. And even in the book of Isaiah, with very strong language, God says to his people, I'm sick of your worship. Because it's all ritual and your hearts are far from me. I don't want your worship anymore. I want you, your hearts. And so we see that the system was meant to be temporary. It was a means to an end. It was meant to point forward to something newer and better. And so we see as the Israelites continue on in their rituals and and God eventually says, no, I don't want your rituals. I want your hearts. That their religion has eventually becomes a cultural thing to them. And so eventually, judgment comes. The Babylonians destroy the temple and takes the Israelites into captivity. And we see that the system didn't work. It didn't make them right with God, and it was never meant to. The priests were sinful men just like everyone else. 
But if you look through the Old Testament, there's glimmers of hope. There's glimmers, there's a better system coming. We saw last week in Genesis 3.15 that there was a hope of a Savior coming, even from the very beginning. Well, we're going to see this week that there's hope of a new priest and a new religious system coming. In Genesis 14, we begin to see this. The first glimmer comes when we meet a character in Genesis named Melchizedek. And this is Genesis 14, 17 through 20. This is Abram, before he has his name changed. This is Abram. He's just come from rescuing Lot. And this is what it says. After his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, Abram, at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And so we see this character, Melchizedek, kind of come out of nowhere. That's really the only place he shows up in Scripture by character. His name will come up a couple other times. But that's it. That's all we know about Melchizedek. And there's some strange things going on in the story if you know anything about the culture. And you're probably looking at the scripture saying, well, what does that have to do with Jesus being a priest? Well, let's think about it. We're talking about Abram here, or later to be known as Abraham. And this event takes place before Moses, before all the law, before the priesthood, before all these things. And yet we read about this man, Melchizedek, who's a priest of God. Well, if you don't have a priesthood, how could you have a priest of God? There was no lineage established yet. Nothing was established. And so it's a very interesting thing that we see we have a priest of God here already. We don't know where he comes from. I guess the city of Salem. But but this means that Melchizedek, he's a priest of God. It doesn't say he's an Israelite. I mean, there was no nation of Israel at this point. It doesn't say he was related to Abraham. And so what we see is that Abraham, who's the father of the faith, acknowledges that Melchizedek is greater than he is. He acknowledges that Melchizedek has a higher status than he does. And we see this by the fact that Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek. He gives him his offerings, and Melchizedek blesses Abraham. Now, if you know anything about Hebrew culture, one of the main things is that the people doing the blessing were the superior person. So that's why you'd see, you know, the father would give the the blessing to the family because he was the head of the family and things like this. So we see that Abraham is acknowledging that Melchizedek is higher than he is in status. Again, Abraham's the father of the faith. You know, there's no one higher than Abraham. That's pretty impressive. All that to say what this shows us is that somehow there's another order or another class of priests existing in the Old Testament. Again, Melchizedek's the only one we know of. The Bible really doesn't say much about it yet, but it shows us that somehow Melchizedek must have been appointed directly by God whereas the Israelite priests were appointed by birthright. So we see there, there's a glimmer of hope. There's a strange fact that maybe there's some other type of priesthood going on here. And we see this also in Psalm 110. If you turn to Psalm 110, 1 through 4, you'll see the name Melchizedek again. This is the only other place that it's mentioned in the Old Testament. And the writer of Hebrews will make a big deal about this. In Psalm 110, 1 through 4, it says this, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments 
From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that passage might not make sense right now, and that's okay. But what we see is that God is promising that there's a priest coming who's from the order of Melchizedek. Now, again, all other priests in Israel are from the the order of Aaron or the Levitical priesthood. There's no other mention of a different priesthood except for here and in the passage we just read in Genesis. But we see that God promises, and he says of the one coming, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, obviously the Levitical priests were not priests forever. They were men like us. They died. But this priest will be priest forever, perfect in executing his duties. When we look ahead to the New Testament, we see that the book of Hebrews will tell us that if there's a new priest, a new priesthood, there obviously has to be a new system. You can't change the priesthood without changing the system. And this is the argument of the entire book of Hebrews, that there is now a new system and a new priesthood, a new way to come into God's presence, a new way to relate to God. And that is the promise that we see, one of the promises of Christmas, a new priest and a new priesthood. The promise was made hundreds of years before Jesus, before he even came on the scene. And when we look to the New Testament, we see the promise fulfilled in the person of Christ. So we're not going to spend time this morning making the argument that Jesus is a priest and has set up a new system for the people of God. Uh, The first 10 chapters of the book of Hebrews are devoted to that argument, showing that Jesus is the new priest. But what we're going to look at this morning is how Jesus fulfills this role of priest. What does it mean that Jesus is a priest? How does that that affect us as, as Christians? What does he do as a priest? Is he doing anything now? And as we look, we'll see that the answer in Scripture is a resounding yes. He is doing his priestly duties right now as we speak. So we're going to kind of divide this up into two main roles. Two main things that the priest did, and we'll see how Jesus does these. We'll see how they apply to Jesus. Now, you remember in our earlier discussion on priests in general, they have two main duties. One, offering sacrifices, and two is making intercession for the people or praying for the people. So let's look at this first one, sacrifice. Jesus fulfilled this duty of a priest in a way that no other priest could. Remember what type of sacrifice was required by God. It was a perfect, innocent sacrifice. Well, there's only one person, one thing that fits this bill, and that's Jesus Christ himself. And so Jesus, as priest, is both the offerer of the sacrifice and the sacrifice himself. He offered himself on the altar, on the cross. And the book of Hebrews has a lot to say on this matter. So turn to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to read through a portion of this, and I think you'll begin to see how it connects here. Starting in verse 1, chapter 9. Now, even the first covenant, speaking of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. So we're talking about the temple. So he's talking about the first section. We're talking about the outer courts of the temple. That's where the bread was in the table. It's called the holy place. Now behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place or the holy of holies. Now this was the area of the temple, some of you may know this, that was only allowed to be entered into one day a year by the great high priest on the day of atonement. And this was the day of the year when they, they still do this, it's Yom Kippur, when the high priest would go into the holy of holies, most holy place, 
And he would offer a sacrifice for the nation of Israel, for all the sins of the people of Israel. And there was so many regulations that he had to follow. Now this place was so holy because what was in the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. And on the Ark of the Covenant was the altar where God had told the people that his presence dwelt. And so the point was that no one could enter into God's presence except for this one day of the year to offer sacrifice for sin. So he says, behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna from the wilderness, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. So these were things to remind the Israelites of who they were as a people. And above the Ark of the Covenant were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So the author is saying, we don't have time to keep talking about this. We've got to move on. That's what he's saying. He does that a lot in this book. It's really funny, actually. And in verse 6, we continue. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. So the first section, the holy place, was where the priests would go and do all the sacrifices. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So again, the high priest could not enter the most holy place without blood, because he himself was sinful. And he continues in verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. So as long as the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, was still standing, that's it. The Holy Spirit's indicating that the way is not opened to God. And then he continues in verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the consciences of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So what he's saying there is the sacrifices didn't do anything. They couldn't purify the consciences of the people. They didn't take away anybody's sin. They were there just as regulations dealing only with food and drink and various washings until the time of reformation. What he's saying was they were to point forward to the time of Christ. Now we continue on in verse 11. Now listen to this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent or temple, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves like the other priests, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer or cow sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. What he's saying is, the high priest, when they would bring their blood in of the goats and calves, that couldn't really do anything. But Jesus entered once and for all into the holy place, not the actual temple, but the temple that was in heaven entered into that holy place, not with the blood of some goat, but his own blood offered on the altar for us. Now he says that blood and that sacrifice can purify our conscience and can remove our sin. That's amazing. And then you skip down, he continues in verse 24, he says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God, 
on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. So he's saying he's not going to have to do this again and again and again, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Again, what he's saying is, is if he had to keep doing it every time we sinned, he'd have to do it always forever, keep sacrificing himself because we keep sinning. But he says no. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so what the author of Hebrews there is communicating is that Jesus offered himself once for all, and it's done. One sacrifice, one time, it's finished for all time. Sin is now forgiven when you put your trust in Christ and there's no more sacrifices to be made. It's done. A perfect sacrifice gives us perfect forgiveness. And so we put an end. With his sacrifice, he put an end to all the sacrificing, all the priestly duties of those priests in one fell swoop 2,000 years ago. His death was not just an execution, but a sacrifice. His own blood was shed in place of yours and mine. You or me, we could ever have taken care of the sacrifice on our own because we're not perfect, but he was. You see, that's why the priests couldn't ever sacrifice for others without first sacrificing for themselves. They weren't perfect, neither are we. But Jesus was, and so he could make a true sacrifice. That is why it was necessary. This is what it tells us. It tells us loud and clear that we cannot be right with God on our own account. We can't do it. Sacrifice needs to be made. Blood needs to be shed. And we can't do it because we're the ones that need the sacrifice. And if we can't do it, we need someone else to do it. The only person who can do that is Jesus. And he did. You cannot be right with God unless your sins are covered with the blood of Jesus. You can't. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying here. There's no other way to be right with God outside of Jesus Christ himself. The only way to obtain a right standing with God is to be included in this sacrifice. That's it. That's the only way. It's through putting your faith in his sacrifice, trusting that the work he did on the cross, sacrificing himself, is enough. That's how you get covered in the blood of Jesus. Jesus, I trust in your work, not my own. You acknowledge that you aren't good enough. That no matter how many good things you could do in this life, it's never enough because it's always tainted with sin. Our motives are never pure. Our works are never pure. They're always tainted with sin. But Jesus' works were never tainted with sin. And that's why his sacrifice is enough. We are sinful. We need his sacrifice. And so we trust. We trust in his sacrifice. That's what Christianity boils down to. Jesus I cannot stand before you. I am guilty, but I trust in your sacrifice and your blood. But I know how this goes. Inevitably, there's some of you sitting here today thinking, okay, this is a little much. Blood, sacrifice, death, priests. I mean, come on, I don't need all this stuff. You know, we're in the 21st century, right? I'm a pretty good person. I do my best. I do good things. I've never murdered anybody. But let's have a moment of honesty. None of us are really good deep down. I mean, we may do good things. We may be good relative to other people, but not relative to God, and that's the problem. Think about it. If you had to stand before God right now, who is perfect and good and holy, and he examined all of your thoughts that you've ever had, all of your intentions, every motive of your heart, you can't tell me that you would pass that test. He would find no fault in you. 
None of us would. We need to just get over it and admit it. We have to let go of our pride. Before God, every one of us falls short, every last one of us. And all of our trying to do good on our own just makes the situation worse. The book of Isaiah says that someone trying to do good things without trusting in God, God looks at their good works and considers them as menstrual rags, essentially. It's garbage. It's disgusting. I don't want your good works because the problem is they're not good. We think they are and they're not. They're tainted with our sin. So we need to give up. And so I would encourage you, any of you today who are not trusting in Jesus, today give up trusting in yourself. It's not going to work. You're not that good. It just doesn't work. You can trust in Jesus, though, because his sacrifice does work, and it did. One sacrifice once for all. But how do we know that Jesus' sacrifice was enough? Well, first off, he rose from the dead, thereby God signifying that this is good, this is right, I accept his sacrifice. He rose him from the dead. But also, again, we can look to the book of Hebrews in chapter 10. The writer of Hebrews says this, Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, we have all been sanctified. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In verse 18, he says, where there is forgiveness of these sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. It is incredibly important, those words that come after this. After he had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. You see, because in the temple, like I said earlier, there were no seats. Because the priests never sat down, because there was always sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice to be made. Well, what's the first thing that Jesus does after he makes his sacrifice? He sits down because it's done. There's no more priestly work as far as sacrifice to be done. He sits down at the right hand of God, thereby signifying that the sacrifice has been made. It's over. One sacrifice was enough. One single offering, and he perfected all who would trust in him for all time. And this impacts us in a number of ways. The first is that we can rest in his sacrifice. And some of you really need to hear that today. And this is something that struck me as I was looking over this passage. You need to rest in Jesus' sacrifice. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you're trusting in his sacrifice, you can rest in that. He took care of everything. You have nothing left to do to earn God's love. You can't anyway. It's over. You don't have to make up for your past sins. That's the beauty of the gospel is that all your sins, past, present, and future, are wiped away. They're done. It's over. So rest in that. And as you think of Jesus sitting down after he makes the sacrifice, maybe spiritually, metaphorically, you need to sit down too and stop trying to earn your way to God. Take rest in him. Take refuge in Jesus and his work. Your conscience can rest. Trust in that work. That's the radical nature of Jesus in the gospel, is that when you come to Jesus, all your sins are wiped away. See, that makes Christianity utterly unique because every other religion, you come and then you immediately begin working your way to become good, to, to kind of cleanse yourself of all these things. Christianity is the opposite. You come and Jesus pays the price for you. Jesus makes you right. 
Jesus took care of all the work. There's nothing left to be done for your salvation. Just trust. That's it. Your sin doesn't surprise him. It doesn't scare him. He paid for it already. There's no condemnation left for those who trust in him. So rest in that. Meditate on that truth that nothing can separate you from his love. The second way that kind of impacts us is that we can enter into his presence with boldness. Hebrews 10 continues on. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and that's really important. The priests, when they would go into the holy places, they didn't do it with confidence. I mean, in the Old Testament, there's, there's cases of people getting struck dead for not following the regulations right. So they did not enter into the holy places with confidence. So this is radical. The author of Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith. So we can now come before God in the most holy places, directly in his presence, with confidence and with boldness. That's new. That's why he calls it. It's a new and living way. That's not how it ever was before. And it's a living way because it's Jesus himself is the way. That's how we enter into the presence because he is our priest. And so again, We enter with confidence and boldness. We can draw near to God in prayer with full assurance that he hears us and that we are completely forgiven in his sight. And we need to digest this truth this morning. If you truly trust in the blood of Jesus for forgiveness, you can have complete assurance. What that means is you don't have to trust your feelings because we know all how that is. Okay, I'm trusting in Jesus today and then we struggle with some sin or we give into temptation and then All of a sudden we revert to, okay, well, I don't know if I'm saved uh, because I did this sin. No, it says if you're trusting in the blood of Jesus, you can have full assurance in him because it's not based on your work. That's the point. And so if your salvation is not based on your work, then keeping your salvation is not based on your work. It's in your trust in Jesus, truly trusting in the blood of Christ and in his sacrifice. So again, enter into his presence with joy and with confidence and boldness. That's why he sacrificed himself, so that we could have that privilege. And I think, honestly, we insult him when we live our Christian lives in timidity. It's it's not biblical. He says, enter into his presence with boldness and confidence. We don't have to earn anything anymore. So, So rest in that. Enter into his presence. But inevitably, we will struggle with that, right? We will struggle believing that. We will struggle with sin, and that is why we need the second role of Jesus' priesthood. And this is amazing and important, his intercession. So the first role of priest was to offer sacrifice, and we saw he did that. He sacrificed himself, but also he fulfills the second role of a priest, and that is he offers intercession. He offers prayers for his people. Think about it this way. Jesus' sacrifice was how he procured your salvation. Jesus' intercession is how he applies it to you. I mean, even teaching this is a struggle because it's such an amazing, awesome, high and lofty concept that it's impossible to convey the awesomeness of it. I mean, seriously, think about this. Jesus' intercession literally means that he prays for us. He prays for his people constantly. He prays 
for our needs. He prays over our lives. He prays when we face temptation. He prays when we face the devil. He prays for you. Continually. He upholds our very lives by the power of his prayer. That's what he's doing right now in heaven with the Father. As he's sitting at his side, he's praying for us. I mean, that's amazing. I don't live like that's true all the time. But what if we did? I mean, think about that. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 34. This is what the Apostle Paul says. Who is to condemn? By the way, that's big. No one. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? So what is he doing sitting at the right hand of God? He's continually praying for his people. 1 John 2.1 says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I mean, it's crazy. Jesus didn't stop at his death and resurrection. He continues his work this very moment praying for us to the Father. It's just mind-blowing. And the question that I ask when I come to that truth is why? And there's only one biblical answer, and it's because he loves us. Because he gets it. He understands the things we face. Think about it. And this is another thing that we gloss over in our Christian lives. God entered into humanity not just to save us. Because then it would have looked like Jesus just coming down, dying on the cross, and then going back up to heaven. But that's not what he did. He lived for 33 years on this earth. He understands what it's like to walk in human flesh. That's the point of the birth of Jesus. Listen to Hebrews 4, 14. Just listen to these words and let them comfort you. Let this sink in. This is what the author says. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's incredible. Do you hear what that's saying? It's saying that our high priest, Jesus is not a high priest who can't sympathize with us. In fact, it says the opposite. It says because he walked on this earth, because he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, he gets it. And so because of that, he can help us in our weakness. He doesn't look at us when we sin, stupid idiot. He gets it. That's what Hebrews 2, he makes the point again. He says this, Therefore, He had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation or atonement for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Think about that. When you're being tempted, sometimes you can think that that God doesn't get it or that God just looks at you in your temptation and goes, Gosh, you failed again. I can't believe this. No, it says that Jesus was walked on this earth and was tempted himself so that when he was praying for us as our high priest, he gets it. 
He is able to help those who are being tempted, it says. It says he can sympathize with us because he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. And so we can draw near when we need grace and mercy in time of need. That's incredible. You need to hear that today, that Jesus sympathizes with your weakness. He understands, and out of that, he pours out mercy and love. I was talking this week with multiple people kind of about this concept and what their preconceived notions were about this or or how they thought about this. And there was a common thread as we talked about kind of how God looks at us. So think about that maybe real quick as we come to conclude here. When you think of God viewing you, how do you think God views you? What do you think his thoughts are when he thinks of you? Again, as I was talking with some people this week, we kind of all agreed that when we think about God thinking of us, There's two common things that everyone came up with. Anger and disappointment. That God views us in disappointment because of our sin and that God views us in anger because of our sin. That's not a biblical concept. See, we think that because we sin, right? But that's not what Hebrews is saying. In fact, it's saying the opposite. It's saying that Jesus is not angry or disappointed when we sin because he sympathizes He pities us in our sin. He weeps for us in our sin. And so he died for us so that he could take that anger and punishment away from us on the cross so that we don't have to endure it. There's no more anger and wrath left for those who trust in Christ. He's not surprised that you are weak. He gets it. He knows you're weak. In fact, 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says that God is strong when we are weak. He gets more glory when we're weak. And so Jesus is constantly praying for us. Well, he's only praying for us because he knows that we can't do it on our own. And so because of his sacrifice, because of his intercession, God does not view you as disappointing. He views you as a son, as a daughter, his own son, his own daughter. And even the most sinful of fathers and mothers here look on their own children with love. God looks on you with infinitely more love than that. And when we think about this, When we think of Jesus' ministry on earth, he never looked at anyone with disappointment or anger who was repentant. The only people he looked at with anger was those who said, I'm good, I don't need this. Anyone who was repentant, he had compassion for. The brokenhearted, the poor, the sinner, the lost, he loved with great compassion. He's no different now that he's in heaven. As I was preparing, I was just hit with this fact of Oh, Jesus, I need this. I need you as my priest. Because there's no other priest. We either have Jesus as a priest or we're left standing in the presence of God with no sacrifice for sin. Standing in our own sin. And that is not a good place to be. And so this is one of the promises of Christmas. There is a priest coming. In the birth of Jesus, we see that promise fulfilled. God loves us enough that he would walk with us so that he would be a faithful priest. So we can trust that this morning. For those of you who are trusting in Jesus this morning, you need to grab hold of this truth and live by this truth. That he has everlasting compassion for you. Unending mercy. Unending love for you. He looks on you with sympathy. He understands, it says. What that means is we can go to him without fear. We can go with confidence. He's not angry. He's not disappointed. He's our Father. And we can trust in His sacrifice. Trust in His love. And to those of you who are not trusting in Jesus, 
Jesus himself said that you have no place in these promises. These are for those who will put their trust in Jesus. Not for everybody. You have no access to God. Hebrews told us that there's only one living and new way into God's love, into God's presence, and that's through Jesus Christ himself. The Apostle Paul says of those who will not trust in Jesus that every breath they take in this life, they are storing up the wrath of God for themselves in rebellion against God. My friend, this is not a good place to be. But the beauty of it is, is it does not have to be so. You see, you need a priest. We all need a priest. And Jesus is the great high priest. So I'd encourage you this morning, turn from trusting in your own goodness. It will not work. Turn from your sins. Turn to Jesus. He's merciful. He's loving. And place your hope and trust in him. It doesn't matter what you've done. His sacrifice is enough. His mercy is enough. His love is enough. And that's the beauty of it. He's already done all the work. All you have to do is come to him. All you have to do is come to him. Say, Jesus, I need you. I can't do this on my own anymore. The offer is free. The grace that we all need is free. So just come. I encourage you to come. This morning, this very hour, don't wait. Let's pray. Father, we just stand in awe of you this morning. In awe of the fact that you love us so much that you would send your own son to offer himself as a sacrifice for us. We can't even begin to comprehend how big and how infinite your love is. And Lord, we just stand in amazement of that. We stand in amazement that not only have you given your son as a sacrifice, but you've given your son as a priest for us. That we're not just starting this Christian life and then left out to just go on our own, but yet he prays for us continually, Lord. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to live by that this morning. Help that truth to sink deep down in our heart. That the next time we come to sin, we come to struggle, we come to weakness, and we're tempted to turn away from you, Lord, help us to remember this truth, that we can turn towards you in boldness and confidence, resting on Jesus' sacrifice, resting on his mercy, resting on your love, God. Help us to do that. Help us to rest in his sacrifice, to just rest in you this morning, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would just open people's eyes this morning, that your Holy Spirit would just fill them with life this morning. For all those here who don't know you, God, would you open their eyes? Would you show them the uselessness of trusting in their own goodness, God. Show them your mercy. Show them your love. Pour it out this morning on them, Lord. Lord, we thank you that we do have a great high priest in heaven whose name is love. Whoever lives and sits at your right hand to make intercession for us, God. We thank you for all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org.
There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.